If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Some of you are visiting with us this morning for a special occasion. Uh, others of you may be visiting here this morning and not know that this is my final sermon as the preaching pastor of Crossway Christian Church. And I have to say that apart from the last year, I never thought at all about standing in this pulpit and saying goodbye, but it seemed like God had other plans. I thought for a long time about what a farewell sermon should look like because I've actually never seen or heard one. I've been in churches before where the pastor has left and usually uh, a letter is read and he takes his two weeks vacation and you never see him again. And so immediately someone else is preaching the next week and, and things just kind of move on. And so uh, I've never been in a context where I've seen someone actually be able to get up and bid farewell to their congregation. So when in doubt, uh, when I don't know uh, what I should know or what I might know, I do or I did what I always do, and that is go to my library and find a book that will help me out. And uh, in this instance, uh, I went and found a book of sermons from the year uh, 1662, because that was the year that after the English Civil War, the monarchy was restored and religious freedom was neutralized in England. And the result was over 2,000 pastors were uh, forcibly removed, ejected from their churches because they would not conform to the Church of England standards. And so what you have in that book is a collection of all of their farewell sermons to their congregations. Now, the circumstances of my departure are not nearly as dire or uh, life-threatening, as it were, as that. Seeing those passages that they preached on helped me to think how I might convey the love and affection and thanksgiving uh, that I have for the past 13 years and what final parting words of instruction I might offer. Uh, obviously, I can't preach all of them, but here's some of the texts that I saw that especially resonated with me. Some from the Gospels, like John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Or from Luke 12, 23, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Then there were sermons from Paul's words, the congregations that he had started. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my crown and joy, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or one pastor did a whole sermon just on one phrase from 2 Corinthians 7. Dearly beloved. Finally, there was one passage that I almost picked, the benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. More than just text, reading the sermons were helpful because they re revealed men who in the midst of this adversity remained confident that God was still sovereign and that he was working out his plan for their good, even though the circumstances provided a great mystery at the time. Uh, that message was especially uh, comforting and bracing for me and for my family as we face an uncertain future. Almost a year ago, we were confident that God was calling us to something new. 
It wouldn't be easy to leave behind our dearest friends, but through an internal sense of calling and the validation of many voices who expressed their confidence that this new work in missions would be something that I was especially gifted at, we began to move forward for working with TLI, Training Leaders International. Along the way, we soon discovered some things about where we would be moving. Number one, that the city for which we were moving, or to which we were moving, had uh, an amazing amount of autism resources, which uh, by comparison we found are sorely lacking here in Michigan. And so we thought of the benefit to our family there. Likewise, our house sold in just two weeks after being put on the market, despite others in our neighborhood that have been there for several months. All these same things seemed like extra blessings to encourage us in our move to us, and we took great comfort in those things. But one thing has been lacking through the past year of transition that is most essential, supporters who will contribute to our work. Over the last several months, we have talked to over 165 families directly, spoke to over 1,000 people at churches through sermons and testimonies, and worked with the leadership of 15 churches, all the while seeking support for our work with TLI. More than just having prayer and financial support, we needed all of this to be given in a timely manner. TLI's ministry plan and expansion possibilities operates on the basis of knowing which of their missionaries is going to be on the field. And so without people on the field to leave teams, teaching sites cannot be manned and training that they've planned for cannot take place for the global pastors in those churches. By God's grace, several people came on board and began partnering with us, not only praying, but giving generously to us, supporting us even now that we could go and travel and have the means to do even more support raising. And we've been very thankful for their encouragement and prayers. But unfortunately, they were not enough. For all of our best efforts and faithful diligence in support raising, we have not yet reached our minimum goals for going. We needed to be at 50% of our goal in order to begin in August and 100% nine months after that, and we are barely at 30% right now. And the reality is we have exhausted almost all of our contacts. Larger churches that we were looking at that were interested in supporting us uh, have said that they will not be able to begin giving until late 2017 or 2018, well past our deadlines. And so while it is incredibly hard for, understand, for us to understand why, and very difficult for me to even say, uh, God is making clear that we will not be working with TLI in the immediate future. For whatever reason that are mysterious to us, God is closing that door. And you can imagine this has been a painful realization for us and for uh, our family. Well, why would God give so much direction on leaving for a specific ministry, closing the door now as we are preparing to leave uh, this ministry at Crossway, which we have loved so much. We just don't know. All that we do know is that in the last few weeks, our lives have been filled with distress and disappointment, confusion, and not a few tears. We have no idea what is next for us as a family for ministry. And at times like this, we want to ask, what are you doing, God? Why are you doing this to us? What do you want from us? What is your will for our lives? And those questions are not wrong, but more often than not, God never answers questions in the, like that in the way that we would like. In fact, we often pray to fervently know God's will in specific circumstances, in specific things, and we never get answers. And at the same time, we forget that God has already given us 
very specific commands and instructions on how we are to live our lives. So this morning, as we bid farewell with tears in our eyes and love in our hearts, I want to offer one last encouragement that is just as much meant to be an encouragement for you as it is for me on how to live by simply doing what God wants us to do, to trust Him and obey Him in good times and in bad times, even uncertain times, for that is what magnifies His glory more than anything else. So for my final text to explain and as apply as your pastor, I want to look at the passage that I have used to close almost every single one of my quarterly reports over the last decade or so, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Follow along as I read God's Word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May God bless the reading of his inerrant and inspired and infallible word. Notice the author begins by saying, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, remember this comes right after chapter 11, uh, the great chapter of faith, the hall of faith, as some have said, as Hebrews goes through the old covenant history of the people of God, highlighting men and women who lived by faith in God's promises. Some of them lived amazing lives and saw amazing things and others suffered death and defeat. One is even said to have been sawn in two, and yet all of them lived by faith in God's promises. And these verses now are the application of that chapter. This is how we live by faith in God's promises. We run the same race, the race of faith. In fact, the central command, the central imperative of these verses comes at the end of verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That is God's simple but profound way of telling us, this is my will for your life in all circumstances. It doesn't matter if the bank accounts are full and you are prospering or if the wheels have fallen off in your life. This is how I want you to live. He tells us what to do and he tells us how to do it. And it starts with this straightforward command to run the race. Run the race. We have a race to run, but what exactly is it? I mean, he says, run this race, but what is he talking about? What is the race? Uh, simply put, it's the Christian life. And the language of a race is simply a metaphor for the life that God has called us to live as Christians. So what does that race look like? First, we understand from the passage that this is a planned race. It is a planned race. Notice he says that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, this isn't a race that, that we've designed. Um, you know, it's not like something that my kids and I would build with Legos or something or, or Hot Wheel cars or we've set up some kind of crazy track and we say, all right, now it's time for a race. No, that's not the case. Uh, this is more like, you know, Mario Kart Wii racing. Someone else has already laid down the race. They've established the track and the course and you just show up and begin to run it. That's what we have here. Even in a foot race, there are official rules. There are lanes that we stay in. There is a course that has been cut ahead, and that's what we do. Of course, some people are always trying to do something different. Uh, one of my favorite examples 
by favorite, I mean notoriously favorite, not like something I would emulate. But back in 1980, there was a lady named Rosie Ruiz who placed first in the Boston Marathon, much to the shock of everyone that was there, both running and in attendance. She finished a full 25 minutes faster than the time that she had trying to qualify for the race. Um, the person that was expected to win, the person that had been in the lead the whole time, showed the finish line and she was already there. Well, about, about a week later, the, she was stripped of that title when she found out that someone had driven her halfway through the course and then dropped her off and she began running. She didn't play by the rules and so she failed to win. Sometimes we don't like the race that we're running. We want our life to be something different. We want it to be something that we can make by ourselves. But obviously things don't work out the way that we want, even with the best intentions. Hebrews reminds us that God is the one who established the days of our lives. With sovereign authority, he has set before us the course that he desires us to run. Not surprisingly for me, this has been both a challenging but also a comforting truth. Regardless of the pain or the uncertainty about not going where we believed God was calling us to go, this is nevertheless the path that God has laid down for our lives. And so we grasp hold of passages like the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. We have a lap in the race that we don't like. It's okay. It's still come the good and wise and sovereign hand of God. And therefore, if we run it, it will be for His glory. If we believe that, we can confess like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For though He slay me, yet I will still hope in Him. So run the race of faith that God has set before you. It's a planned race that we run, but it's also a persistent race. It's a persistent race. Hebrews says this is a race that requires endurance. In other words, this race is not about finishing first. That's not what it's about. We're, we're not running in competition with one another. In fact, we're running as a team together with God's people. And so we need to think of the Christian life not like a sprint to the finish, but rather a marathon. Earlier, we, we mentioned the Boston Marathon and races like that. Uh, in, in those kinds of races, there are always people that are looking to, to be first. That, that's their entire goal. That's what they train for. They want to be in the top 10. They're aiming for a, a personal best time. But the vast majority of the people that enter those kinds of races, they're just looking to finish. That's all they want to do. They, they want to be able to cross the finish line despite the race that requires grueling endurance. That's the Christian life, friends. It's not about being first, it's about finishing the line with our faith firmly planted in God and His promises. It's about persevering to the end. The sad thing is many of us could probably sit here and begin to name off people that we know started well but didn't finish well. They failed to follow through and live a life in the faith of God's promises, either by gross immorality or by doctrinal heresy, they disqualified themselves from the race and have walked away from the faith. They've shown themselves to be professing Christians only. We dare not imitate them. Hebrews says, because of who Jesus is, because of who has run before us, that he tells us about in chapter 11, let us run, run 
the race that God has put before us. Do not meander, don't pick flowers, don't lollygag in the course that God has set before you. Run for all you're worth. Run like your life depends on it. L- run like Christ is worth it. But how do we run that well? H- how do we keep going? How do we, how do we not grow faint and weary and, and, and fall apart? Well, I would say if we pulled back and looked at the whole Bible, we could say several things. But here specifically, Hebrews is going to give us two instructions on how to run the race. So the second thing that we see and the first instruction on how to run is this. We need to abandon burdens. We need to abandon burdens. One of my favorite hymns, the writer says that in this life we have many dangers, toils, and snares. These are the kinds of things that threaten to cause us to fail to run well the Christian life. And so what do we do with those things? We get rid of them. We don't embrace them. We don't hang on to them. We don't load them up in a bag. We, we cast them away. Hebrews says we are to lay aside anything that is going to weigh us down in the Christian life. Those of you that enjoy watching the Olympics, you'll know that uh, prior to the race, you see all these guys that that are going to run, girls as well, and and they're all got these heavy track suits on, they're wearing hats, some of them got scarves on, and and, you know, uh, they're kind of just kind of doing this number, and they're just kind of keeping movement, but, and you're thinking, are they going to run in that? And no, of course they're not going to run in that. And as soon as they, they reach like down to the last minute or two, suddenly all that stuff comes off. Hat goes off, scarf goes off, uh, track pants come off, uh, jacket goes off, and, and they get down to simply their running clothes, a shirt and a pair of shorts. These days, uh, some, some of them will just look like they're wearing a bathing suit that they're going to run in, for goodness sake. What's the point? They don't want anything hindering them. They want to run as fast as they possibly can, and they don't need anything holding them back. And that's the imagery here. We are to strip off, to cast aside, to abandon every ounce of excess weight that's going to prevent us from running the way that God wants us to run. And so he mentions two specific things. First of all, we need to abandon the burden of wicked entanglements. Abandon the burden of wicked entanglements. That should be pretty obvious, right? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. One of the clearest express expectations or commands that we have in the Bible as God's people is that we will be pursuing holiness. We're given all kinds of reasons to do this, but the end is the same. We've been saved and adopted by a holy God. Therefore, just as our Father is holy, so we ought also to be holy. We are seeking to imitate Him, to be like Him. And here's the reality. Sin doesn't just fall off by itself. I mean, as much as I, I love John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress, that, that imagery has been misused sometimes of, of the, the burden uh, falling off and rolling down the hill. Yes, the, our burden of guilt does. But sin doesn't just fall off like that. We have to be active in taking it off, as it were. So, for example, in Ephesians, Paul says, put off your old self, your, your former way of life in Adam, and put on Christ. And so we can kind of of think broadly about the pursuit of holiness, but I also think we need to think specifically because that's what I think Hebrews has in here. Notice he talks about the sin which clings so closely. I don't think he just means generic sin. I think he means those sins that each and every one of us are probably aware of and we struggle with all the time. The old writers called these things besetting sins. You begin to think you've got a handle on it and you're doing well, and, you, and, and then the next week you, you engage in the same sin. And you think, why did I do that? 
And so you pray and you repent and you try again. And sometimes it's the next day. Sometimes it's every day for a week. And then, and then, you, and, and then, and then you're able, by God's grace, to stop and to, to live apart from that sin for a while. And, but then it comes back. And Hebrews says, identify those things. Don't just kind of skip over them. Zero in on those things and work at stripping them off and throwing them away. Don't allow them to be like barbed wire that, are, that, that we step into and get caught up in and are unable to run the race. No, throw it off. Cast aside, get rid of it so we can run the race that God has called us to. We need to abandon wicked entanglements, but notice we also need to abandon the burden of weighty hindrances. Weighty hindrances. This is different than sin. Hebrews already said, lay aside every, every weight and sin. Two different things here. Weights are not inherently sinful things. They are amoral or perhaps even good things in our life that nevertheless still hinder us from running because they weigh us down. They are too big in our life and have too much of a priority. So think about all the good things in our life that we can allow to become weighty things, things that weigh us down. We have obligations of jobs and spouses and children and schools and family. Those are all good gifts from God. Um, particularly as we've been packing up and, you know, I've been trying to remind kids, listen, God gave work before the fall. That This is not an evil or wicked thing. Work is good. Being tired at night is good, right? But, but what happens when work becomes more important than the church? Or what happens when family becomes more important than Christ? What happens when the good things begin to overtake the best things in our life and then become burdensome to us in how we are seeking to live the Christian life in the way that God wants us to? Then, then we have to make adjustments. If, if the concern for getting good grades in school caused you to be disengaged from the life that God wants you to live as his, as his child, then let me just tell you, you need to, to have in your head a concern to have an A with God rather than an A with your teachers, okay? Uh, yes, be a good student. Don't hear me say blow off classes. Be a good student. But if, but if being a good student becomes compulsive for you, where you've got to have 4.0 and you've got to have this and you've got to have the best things, then, then it's a burden. It's a weight. It's a hindrance to you from living the Christian life. What happens when Having money to pay for your bills and to buy food and to have fun becomes the all-consuming drive for you that dethrones Christ and is called to generously give and sacrifice for His kingdom. Then we've got to cast off those weights. Hebrews calls us to think through even the good things that are no longer gifts but burdens to us in our rates. We don't get rid of our family. We don't quit our jobs. We don't drop out of school. We just put things back into the right order. Hebrew calls us to think through the good things that we have and to make sure that they're in the right order. If they become burdens, then we abandon them. We strip them off. We kick them away so that we can run the race that God has set before us. Just practically, let, let me encourage you this afternoon, this evening, sometime, the next day or two. If you wait, you're going to forget. You're going to talk yourself out of it. But soon, just sit down with your phone or a tablet or good old pen and paper and just make a list. Pray and ask God for wisdom and have Him Ask him to help you make a list of sins that you need to deal with, of those non-sinful things, those burdens that may take up too much of your time, that may weigh you down, prevent you from living the way that God wants you to. Be specific. Don't just be vague. If you know that um, there's a certain television show and it leads you to sin, 
then write down that television show and don't ever watch it again. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Take that list, tuck it in your Bible, and then start praying. Ask God for forgiveness, for wasted time and opportunities. Ask for the grace that is necessary to set these things aside. And then find someone to share your list with. Maybe your community group or just another believer. And ask them to pray for you as you continue to run the race and fight the fight of faith. The way to run the race that God has set for us is to abandon our burdens. And just as importantly, to find strength and encouragement to do that by running while we look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. This is the final thing that we see in these verses. Hebrews says that we must run the race, the Christian life well. Thus we should identify sin and wait and lay them aside. And he says now the way to do that the way to abandon those burdens, to reject those things that are going to weigh us down is by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews says the way to live the life of faith is by looking at the object of your faith. We have a Savior that we have been called to follow in faith. And what kind of a savior is he? Well, three things here that describe him in, the, in these verses. First of all, he's a savior who encourages our faith, who encourages faith. Notice in verse two, we're told to look to Jesus who is the founder of our faith. Just following on after the, after the chapter 11, faith here should be understood once again as, believe, as the believing response to God's promises. God says something, we believe it, and that dictates how we live our life. But the way he did it now through Jesus is different. So, so Jesus is the founder of our faith. That means he exemplifies faith in God's promises, okay? And, and he did it so well, so perfectly, that he now becomes the standard for our faith. So he becomes the embodiment of Psalm 18, declaring of God, I will put my trust in you. But notice he's also faith's perfecter. That is, he is the one who brings our faith to its perfect end. He brings it to completion. The work that he completed as Savior for us makes him the object of our faith and provides the means by which we now have access to God and will ourselves one day be perfected in righteousness. So how does he encourage our faith in him and in our faith in God's promises, Hebrews says, it's because he became the founder and, our, and the perfecter of our faith. How? In the fullness of his humanity. Now think about that. Hebrews does not call him Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he simply says, look to Jesus. He is highlighting. He is wanting us to realize the humanity of our Savior. So we think about Jesus being the exemplar of faith. We cannot say, well, it was easy for him. He was God. Now Hebrews says, Remember, he was, of course, fully God, but he's also fully human. He was flesh and blood like us in every way, and he knows exactly what our life is like. He knows every temptation because he himself was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. He overcame and remained holy, and therefore, if we are going to be encouraged to run with endurance, we look to Christ, the one who encourages our faith. How was his faithfulness demonstrated? Hebrews reminds us that he is a savior who endured suffering. Who endured suffering. Our salvation comes to us freely in Christ, but not cheaply. Hebrews says Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. 
you know, when we, it's not like Jesus was taken by surprise, right? I mean, um, the, the, the year previous we looked at, uh, actually two years previous, we looked at Luke's gospel and we saw very clearly Jesus knew the cross was coming. And at the right time, he himself began to reorient his life and ministry to begin moving towards the cross. But by contrast, as someone who does it himself and as someone who counsels others who do it, I know we live in the opposite way. We see pain and we run. We flee. We pray for a pain-free life in almost every way. When pain comes, we are tempted to what? Whine and complain about it. And just as one kind of final transparent example, um, this uh, closing door was, uh, at least to me, very painful. And for about one day in particular, I was not just hurt and confused, but I was, I was angry that this was happening. Um, and the next day, I, I had to repent of how I prayed and how, and how I talked before God that day. But the reality is, we just don't like pain. We don't like difficulty. And yet, what did Jesus do? He embraced it for the joy that was set before him. I got through it by thinking of Jesus in that particular way. Thinking of Romans 8 where Paul says, listen, if God has given you Christ, how will he not now give you all things? Not, not all things that we want, but all things that we need to enjoy God's good purpose of being conformed to the image of his Son. And the basis for Paul's argument there is the giving of the Son by the Father. But the argument in Hebrews is the Son willingly giving himself. Jesus endured the pain of the cross, the, the agony of spikes ripping through his flesh as he was nailed to a cross. But more than that, he endured the shame of the cross. The, you know, this was not just a firing squad. This was a, uh, this was a method employed by Rome to shame criminals, to try and deter people from not living as they lived. And here was the most, the most and the only perfect righteous man who ever lived, strung up like a common, vile sinner. And yet that was the way that true sinners like us could experience salvation from a holy God. Notice Hebrews doesn't say he endured crucifixion. It says he endured the cross. What's the difference? In biblical terms, the cross is not just about physical pain, though it was painful. No, Jesus endured the cross as a means of God's righteous wrath against sin, our sin. In our place, Christ hung condemned. He bore our suffering that we deserve. He bore our judgment for our sins. That's what makes the cross so agonizing. But what did he say? I can do this. I can endure this. I can obey my heavenly father. I can suffer shame and indignity because of the joyful purpose that I know he's going to accomplish. How much more should we endure the by comparison simple suffering that God may bring into our lives? You see, sin always makes a deal with us. Sin always says, it's always easier, it's always going to be better for you if you embrace me. God says, live a holy life, but that's going to be difficult. That's going to be hard. Sin says, just, just come with me. 
and your life is going to be easier. It's going to be better. And we give into the temptation because in the moment, our eyes get narrowly focused on the steps right in front of us and we say, yeah, I want the easy life, so I'm going to embrace the sin. But what does Hebrews say? Don't just look at the step in front of you, look to eternity. And in light of eternity, sin always looks paltry and weak and worthless. We look ahead like the witnesses of chapter 11, like Jesus himself, and endure for the sake of the joy that is set before us, the joy of life with God and all that will come with it. And when we do that, then we can run our race to Jesus, our Savior, a Savior who encourages us with his exalted authority. This is the last way that Hebrews describes Jesus here, a Savior with exalted authority. We are to run looking to Jesus who is where? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That was part of the joy that was set before Jesus. That though he, he set aside his glory in, in, in humility to come into this world, he was going to have it restored after his death and resurrection. There was also the glory of the Father that was going to be accomplished. There is the hope of our own exaltation in Christ on the final day. But right now, that exalted authority probably encourages us the most to know that regardless of what is happening in our life, it is not happening apart from the control of Jesus Christ. He sits at the right hand of God in a position of supreme, sovereign authority. So when we turn away from sin and we look to Jesus, we can trust him. In fact, we confess that he is Lord and that doesn't need to be mere statement. That can be something that we bank our life on. Because what we realize is that when we look to Him, when we trust in Him, then the, just as He had joy, we also will have joy. Great theologian John Owen says this, A constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. Our souls will be revived by the transforming power with which beholding Christ is always accompanied. Faith will fix our souls in Christ who will fill us with delight and satisfaction. The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds full of other things. And these things weaken the power of grace. But when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and His glory, these things will be expelled. When we behold the glory of Christ by faith, every grace in us will be stirred up. That is how our spiritual life is revived. So in the end, at its simplest, this is how we run the race, by looking to Jesus constantly. In just a few minutes, I'm going to walk down these steps and will no longer be the preaching pastor of Crossway Christian Church. In the providence of God, that privilege will pass on to another, and very soon by the looks of it. Nevertheless, it's been my great joy to stand behind this pulpit and sit in your homes and hold you dear in my hearts for these 13 and a half years. These years have not been perfect, but they will always be precious to me. God allows the joys of our fellowship in this life to give us a taste of the eternal fellowship that is to come. And so let's continue to run the race, perhaps not together in this same place, but together by faith in our Savior, though separated by distance and miles. 
And though the immediate future is not as clear as I thought it was just a few weeks ago, I am assured of what Basil Manley so eloquently wrote in his hymn. We meet to part, but part to meet when earthly labors are complete to join in yet more blessed employ in an eternal world of joy. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.